Hello, friends. Today's episode of Love Notes from a Soul Coach is a bit of a departure, and I'm coming on here at the beginning with a heads up that it's a heavy one. Our dog passed away last week, and rather than not talk about it because it's hard and depressing, I wound up writing a piece about what the experience of losing him rather suddenly and the grief around that loss has been like. And I'm going to share that writing on today's show. I went back and forth on this because normally I like to sit with my writing for a bit and make revisions or in some cases change my mind altogether about sharing it. But my instincts have been very loud this time that I should let it be what it is and that I should just share it because I don't subscribe to the idea that we're meant to sequester ourselves in our grief and go off and process it alone and then come back to join the party when we're feeling better. I think it's important to share the realness and messiness of what it means to reckon with a loss. And I think the more we do this in front of each other, the more natural and acceptable it will feel for us all collectively. So today's show is raw and heavy. And if you're not up for this, please go no further with this particular episode. But if you are going through your own raw and heavy, and if it's helpful or meaningful to feel less alone with it, then this one is for you with a lot of love. Okay, here we go. standing in the kitchen in my slippers, eating peanut butter on toast, waiting for my tea to cool enough to sip. Its steam unfurls from a tall cup on the counter, like the first ferns at the end of winter. My youngest is ambling through the house, a teenage zombie looking for his phone. I glance at the clock on the wall and it stares back, unflinchingly. We're going to be late to school again. My capacity to properly mother leaks like air from a punctured tire. I don't know how to patch it, how to make it stop. We're all somewhat zombie-like right now, sleep-deprived and flattened by the grief of losing our ten-year-old dog three days ago. His decline was sudden and steep, cancer, the vets think, but they can't know for sure and we weren't willing to submit him for more harassing and painful tests in order to confirm. His body told us all we needed to know. A limp that turned to near total lameness within days. The loss of vision in his right eye overnight. But he still wanted to eat treats and sit with our other dogs under the Japanese maple in the corner of the yard. His spirit seemed to flat out refuse the reality of his flesh a brightly shining pearl inside the decrepit mortal coil of its container. I swore I'd never have a big dog again, only little ones, the kind you can tuck under your arm and travel easily with, the kind that can sleep in your bed without taking up too much space, the kind you can share a few bites of your sandwich with and call it a meal. But this one slid in under the radar. He was my partner's dog, 
an 80-pound lab mix she rescued from a shelter and raised in Brooklyn, along with his adopted sister, who was half his age and half his weight, the full-blown love of his life. When they first moved in with me upstate at the beginning of COVID, we had four dogs together, the Brady Bunch of blended pet families. It was pure chaos for a bit, but eventually they all settled in and established a hierarchy. In case you're wondering, the seven-pound poodle wound up on top, where she gladly continues her reign today. Dusty was the biggest, but also the sleuthiest of the group. He could move between rooms in ways that felt like a magic trick. How did he get in here? How did he get out of there? He was always climbing up on furniture he wasn't supposed to sit on. He was always breaking rules, breaking us down. He was impossible to say no to. His favorite spots were his bed in the middle of the living room, where he could keep an eye on the comings and goings of the house, and my office, where he was mostly quiet and well-behaved, unless a neighbor walked by with another dog, or a squirrel crept up to the sliding glass door to torment him. He liked to kill his babies one limb at a time. He had a basket full of squeaky toys, missing arms and legs and ears, and, of course, their squeaky hearts. Dusty was very shy, but when he let you in, he let you in deep. His forehead would get hot when he was happy. Sometimes I would press mine against his for long stretches, just sharing the quiet together, communing in our way. We're halfway to school when I realize I'm still wearing my slippers. The zombie asks if he can just skip. I tell him no. He pushes back. Why, Mom? Who cares? I've already missed first period. It doesn't matter. It does matter, I tell him. And maybe he catches the tone in my voice. How desperately I need to believe that things matter right now, in the face of a death I wasn't prepared for, in the face of a loss that feels brutal and unfair, tearing at the broader meaning of things. It does matter. He gets out of the car and doesn't respond when I tell him to try to have a good day. I watch the back of him disappear behind double doors, lumbering toward the metal detector and the long folding table where students are made to open their bags every morning for a weapons search. The need to hate everything rises in my throat like bile. We don't always think of grief like this, but it is like this. It's not just sadness. It's rage. It's anger. It's bitterness, incredulity, resentment. I come from a long line of women who don't do sadness, only anger. Of course I'm being facetious because there's no such thing as a person who doesn't do sadness. The truth is sadness does us. We can learn to guard against it though, to pull the armor up and shutter all the windows. We can live like outlaws inside of our own lives, always on the run. But the fine print we tend to miss when it comes to this particular form of defense is this. It is impossible to barricade ourselves from any one specific feeling without barricading ourselves from them all. Anger is gorgeously protective. It's the swiping claw of a mama bear and the piercing roar of a lion standing in front of its pride. It rejects. It pushes away. It says, fuck off, fuck you, I do not accept this. It comes out swinging, it will blow the house down, it will destroy everything in its way. But at its root, in its purest form, 
It only wants to keep us safe. I know the fire of anger very well. It feels so much easier, so much more familiar than sadness. But I know the risk. If I hang out inside the seductive four walls of its room too long, if I neglect to release myself from its grip and surrender to what's tender, to what is patiently asking to be experienced underneath the rage, I will turn into a petrified forest within myself. I will lose the nuance, the colors. They'll all turn the same charred black in time. To feel anything, we have to feel it all. Life is insane, isn't it? One minute you're eating your favorite cookies under a maple tree, and the next, you're dead. We scheduled our dog's death the way a dental cleaning or a dinner party might be scheduled. We called the vet and discussed our options. He can barely walk on his own. He's mostly sleeping since Wednesday. We paused between words, trying to coordinate a sob and a sentence. We drove with the windows down. We let the obscenely beautiful late April afternoon with its magnolia petals and bright yellow dandelion heads blow in and around us. We paid in advance for the privilege of sending our beloved off to sleep forever so we could leave the vet's office quickly afterwards and skip the line at reception. We rushed through the waiting room past all the not-dying dogs who were panting and pacing and doing the things not-dying dogs do. We returned home grief-struck, disoriented and bereft to the gaping hole of what is missing now. All of the contents of our hearts, the other losses, the other longings, which were assembled so carefully like cups and cupboards, have been dislodged by this death. Our hearts feel collapsed, dolls without their stuffing, vacant and unable to comprehend what will never come around the corner wagging again, delighted to greet us. The thing about dog love is that it isn't like any of the other love relationships in your life. Partners go to work. They disappear behind office doors for long stretches. Children go to school, and when they come home, they raid the kitchen and hand you tiny parcels of cryptic information about their day before jumping online or heading back out to join up with their friends. Your own friends exist largely through the phone, where you send each other funny memes or texts asking to reschedule the plans that took two months to settle on in the first place. Everyone in your life is like a river rushing by, rushing on to someplace else. But dogs are steadfast, the opposite of rushing. They are patiently waiting beside you on the shore of your life as everything else goes fleetingly past, waiting to see which shoes you'll put on. The rain boots are always good news, but the fancy ones with the heels that clip-clop on the bare floors are devastating. They almost always mean you're going out by yourself for a while. Everyone in your life has somewhere to be, but the only place your dog wants to be is with you. You are the destination. You are the sun to orbit. Their whole purpose in life is to stay close, love, and protect you. And soon you find their purpose becomes yours in kind. Their joy is your joy. Their ease is your relief. Seeing them happy and fulfilled brings a feeling of satisfaction and well-being like nothing else. It's so hard to please people, 
so hard to navigate their wants and moods or to find authentic reciprocity. But it's easy to find harmony with a dog, to live in sympathetic resonance, an effortless, natural bond. Our relationships with people are built on words, explanations and reasons why, hurts and forgivenesses, complicated narratives and plot twists. But our communication with dogs transcends all of this. What is there to explain when everything can be perfectly, plainly felt? What is there to forgive beyond a trash bin rummaged through or an accident on a rug? When we lose a dog, we lose the living record of a certain time in our lives. We lose the witness, the easy access to everything we were able to feel and understand together with our dog. It's been four days since his death. The number blooms in my consciousness the first moment I wake. Four days. Soon I know I'll stop counting. No matter how hard I try to hold the present moment still, it will keep being painted over by the next present moment. This is how time works. It's the tick-tock of a metronome, even though you've lost the music. It's brutalizing when you're in the midst of mourning, but it is also what allows us to continue. The shore we were standing on while everything else raced by was always an illusion. The only place we ever exist is right here, smack dab in the current, the momentum of life. We can fight it, we can flail or swim against, but we can't make it stop. The pages in the book are always turning, one sentence yielding to another. It says, and then, and then, and then. There is always something waiting to be freshly written. There is always something else coming next. Mm -hmm.